0: We will take for examination <clears throat> a short sutta from the Majjhima called the Chula Gosinga Sutta, the shorter discourse in Gosinga. And I thought that this sutta follows, though it doesn't follow in numerical sequence, the simile of the saw in the Majjhima the simile of the saw is number twenty one and this is number thirty one so it doesn't follow that sutta in numerical sequence but i think that there is a certain you might say a thematic sequence which it um... which it fulfills And that the discourse on the simile of the saw shows the ideal way in which to respond to abuse and maltreatment at the hands of others. And so the discourse on the simile of the sore is concerned with the, you might say, the ethical aspect of restraint, patience, and humility under difficult and trying circumstances and on the urgency for developing loving kindness and compassion even to those who are one's most bitter, most provocative enemies. The shorter discourse in Gosinga depicts a much happier, more pleasant state of affairs. This is a sutta which illustrates the ideal way in which practitioners of the Dhamma should live together. The way in which practitioners of the Dhamma should live in such perfect harmony that it is as if their minds have blended together and become one. So this sutta, we can say, deals with the positive side of the social relationships of the individual to others, whereas the um, discourse on the simile of the saw deals with the negative side. Or we might say it shows how to arouse positive qualities under negative (coughs) conditions. Okay, this sutta focuses upon or revolves around a discussion between the Buddha and three of his disciples. And it takes place in a park, which is called the Gosinga Solitary Wood. Of these three disciples, only one is very well known. This is the Venerable Anuruddha. Anuruddha was a member of the Sakya clan in the same republic from which the Buddha came, and I believe he was a cousin of the Buddha. And after the Venerable Anuruddha was ordained as a monk, and developed, attained arahanship. He became the disciple who was most distinguished in a particular faculty, a faculty called the diva which means the divine eye. The divine eye is one of the types of abhinya, or higher knowledge, it is a faculty of vision by which one can see things which transcend the normal range of human vision by reason of the faculty of the divine eye a accomplished meditator is able to see events that are taking place at a great distance from the place where he is presently located. Ordinarily, well, narrowly, while we're sitting here, we can see only things going on in this room. If we look out the window, we can see across the lake, perhaps to the hills, and see up in the sky. But our vision is obstructed by material objects. The divine eye is capable of penetrating beyond any material obstructions and seeing events at vast distances. So that if one is sitting here with the divine eye, one can see if it, the power is extended enough, what is happening in Colombo, Anuradhapura, if it's more powerful one can see what is happening in India, Pakistan, um, Burma, Thailand. If it's still more powerful one can see even all over this planet. And those who have developed the divine eye to an extraordinarily high degree of proficiency can see events happening even in other world systems world systems that are light years away from our own countries with advanced technology, United, especially the United States has, have to send space probes which take many many years to reach their destination and can relay back only very partial Information which has to be processed through computers and interpreted. The divine eye can see events happening at such great distances instantaneously with the same perfect clarity with which, as we sit here, we can see the objects right in front of us. And the divine eye is able to see more than events taking place at the level of this physical reality. The divine eye is also capable of seeing processes that transcend the physical level. The divine eye, especially in the suttas, is said to have the important function of generating a type of knowledge called chut upanyana, which means the knowledge of the arising and passing away of beings in accordance with their karma. Through the divine eye, a Yogi, who has developed the requisite facility in its use, can turn his mind to a particular area, region, and in that region there will be people who are dying. In that same region there will be beings who are taking conception, being reborn. By means of the divine eye, the yogi will see how particular beings pass away through the exhaustion of their previous karma, and he will see the actual processes by which they are driven by their karma into new states of existence and take rebirth as determined by that karma. Many of the the Buddha himself had achieved that knowledge of the divine eye and that knowledge of the passing away of beings and arising in accordance with karma. He had achieved it completely free from any obstruction on the very night of his enlightenment. So that for a Buddha there is perfect, unobstructed knowledge in the case of any being to which he directs his attention of how that being has taken rebirth through some previous karma. And when a being dies, the Buddha has only to advert to that being and he knows immediately where that being is going to take rebirth. The great disciples of the Buddha, many of them, aroused this knowledge they were able to achieve it first by reason of what's called the paramis perfections sublime virtues which they had cultivated in many previous existences and then on the with the support of those accumulated paramis they were able to develop the four jhanas, the four absorptions, and by turning their attention and their specific efforts on the basis of that, those jhanas, they would gradually turn their attention to the arousing of the knowledge of how beings pass away and take rebirth in accordance with their karma. And some disciples would succeed in developing this ability to a very limited extent. Others would develop it to a greater, to a greater extent. And of all the disciples who developed the divine eye, the one who excelled in the exercise of this particular mental faculty was the venerable Anuruddha. the venerable Anuruddha said that just as a man who is sitting in the upper story of a palace might look down at the street below in the city, he might look down at the city below and see all of the streets lying laid out and he can see the fields surrounding the city so he himself can just Turn his attention to the universe and he'll see hundreds of world systems just as clearly okay so Anuruddha was this very highly accomplished disciple of the Buddha and in fact if you recall the story of, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta about the demise of the Buddha. When the Buddha was lying between the twin salt trees and after he had given his final exhortation to the monks, then he entered into the successive attainments of the meditative absorption until he was lying completely still and motionless then venerable Ananda said now the blessed one has achieved final Nibbana but Anuruddha because he had the divine eye was able to use that divine eye in a somewhat different mode to examine the mental states of others and so he turned the, his faculty of knowledge towards the Buddha and saw that the Buddha had not yet passed away but had entered into the what's called the Nirodha Samapati, the achievement of cessation, of feeling and perception. And so he told Venerable Ananda, not yet. Then the Buddha passed out of the attainment of cessation and down through the jhanas then up again to the fourth jhana, and then he passed away. And when that happened, then the Venerable Anuruddha said, now the Blessed One has passed away. Okay, so Venerable Anuruddha often would go into periods of retreat with two of his very close friends. These close friends were the Venerable Nandia and the Venerable Kinvila. And the Sutta opens on one such occasion when they were staying in the park of the kosinga Sal tree wood. <coughs> it must have been close to the town of Natika where the Buddha was, was residing. And so one evening, the Blessed One emerged from meditation And he went to the park of the Gosanga solitary wood. And the park keeper saw the blessed one coming in the distance. And it seemed that often we see the Buddha depicted with what are called the 32 marks of the great man. In which he's clearly recognizable as at least someone distinct from ordinary human beings. But it seems that the Buddha must have had ability according to an act of will to prevent these characteristics from appearing too conspicuously so that people who do not have already great trust in him as the Blessed One, as the Enlightened One would not be able to perceive all the features of his physical excellence. He might appear just as an ordinary monk. And so the park keeper, when he saw the Buddha coming, he thought that he was just some ordinary reckless. And so he tried to prevent him from entering the park and told him that there were three monks there who were seeking their own good, who were leading a meditative life, seeking enlightenment. And he said, "Please do not disturb them." Now the venerable Anuruddha heard the park keeper speaking to the Blessed One, and told him, "Park keeper friend, do not keep the Blessed One out. This is our teacher, the Blessed One, who has come." and Venerable Anuruddha went to his friend and told him, come out, come out, friends, our teacher, the Blessed One, has come. Then all three went out to meet the Blessed One and they showed him the customary forms of hospitality and respect. One took his alms bowl and outer robe, another prepared a seat for him, and one put out the water for washing the feet. And so the Blessed One sat down on the seat and the three monks paid homage to the Blessed One and sat down at one side. (coughs) Then the Buddha spoke to them in the usual way of asking about their welfare, polite and courteous informal speech saying, I hope you are getting along well. I hope you are comfortable. I hope you are not having any trouble getting home's food. And the monk said that they were all living together quite well and comfortably without any trouble. Okay, now the Buddha now introduces the topic that he wishes to draw out from the That is, the manner or means of living together harmoniously. What are the defining qualities of a harmonious community? And I would think that perhaps by this time, the sangha was already getting rent by quarrels and disputes and conflicts amongst, between the monks, and so the Buddha, realizing this, may have visited the small group of monks in order to show the qualities of a small community which is living together in perfect harmony. And so he says, apparently, quite incidentally, I hope, Anuruda that you are all living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes, <clears throat> looking at each other with eyes of affection. So Anuruddha, speaking for his small group, says, surely, venerable sir, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. This is a stock description of monks who are living together in harmony. There's another passage which comes sometimes in the text which describes the condition of the Sangha when the monks are not living together in harmony. They are engaged in quarrels, conflicts and disputes, speaking together with their tongues like daggers. This is of course not the ideal conduct for monks, But this is so often the situation with groups of human beings, even when they get together for some good purpose, rather than submitting themselves to the ideals of the group and developing these qualities of mutual appreciation, of blending together like milk and water, instead One will say, this is in the case of the monks, our group understands the Dhamma and discipline. Your group doesn't understand the Dhamma and discipline. Another group will say, no, we're the ones who understand the Dhamma and the discipline. Your group doesn't understand the Dhamma and discipline. And this way, instead of appreciating each other, Instead of trying to resolve the differences through cordial discussion, they maintain their positions stubbornly, obstinately, self-righteously, and then gradually little differences become magnified. Magnified differences lead to feelings of bitterness and resentment then bitterness and resentment erupts in these conflicts, quarrels, and disputes. So that the tongue, instead of becoming a sweet instrument of friendship and cordiality, becomes like a dagger, an instrument for penetrating the feelings of others and hurting the feelings of others. But here we have a group, which is existing in such perfect harmony that they blend just like milk and water. Unfortunately, well, if one adds water to milk, it blends in such a way that one cannot tell the difference between what is milk and what is water. I say unfortunately because this gives an opportunity for merchants to water down the milk and nobody can tell the difference. <laughs> okay, and so now the Buddha is going to draw out from Anuruddha by questioning What is it that enables this group to live together in such complete harmony? So he says, how, Anuruddha, do you manage to live in this way? Then Anuruddha says, as to that, venerable sir, I think thus, it is a gain for me, a great gain for me, that I am living with such companions in the holy life. This shows that element of mutual appreciation. Anuruddha is not a narrow-minded egotist who is examining his fellows thinking, what is their standing? What are they doing? Am I as good as they are? Am I better than they are? Am I lagging behind them? He's not one who looks for faults and shortcomings, but rather he's one who appreciates very much the virtuous qualities of others, and who recognizes what a precious and rare opportunity it is to be able to live together with his such companions in the holy life, those who are dedicated to the same ideals that he's dedicated to, and who have reached such high degrees of spiritual attainment. And so now, having made that initial statement of his appreciation for others, he shows his concrete manner of behavior towards them, how he solidifies this relationship of harmony and mutual appreciation with them. He says, I maintain bodily acts of loving-kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving-kindness towards them both openly and privately and I maintain mental acts of loving-kindness towards them both openly and privately. The word which is used here for loving-kindness is the familiar word metta and usually when we meet metta in the Buddhist suttas, we see it explained in the context of the Brahma Viharas as a meditative exercise. And because of this, some interpreters of Buddhism, especially early Buddhism, hold that for the Buddhist, metta is entirely a kind of meditative state which does not have concrete manifestation. In actual conduct. Or they might hold that virtuous conduct is treated only as a means or instrument for developing states of virtue and meditation and that these virtues developed in meditation do not spill out in the form of manifest conduct. This is a position, interpretation taken by some early scholars who have interpreted the Pali Buddhist teachings. And that's their led to the conclusion that early Buddhism is essentially a form of asocial or anti a-cosmic, acosmic, what is the word used? <laughs> Mysticism. But in this passage, We see the Venerable Anuruddha speaks about three concrete manifestations of metta. Metta in the form of bodily conduct, metta in the form of verbal deeds, and metta in the form of thoughts or states of mind. The Pali expressions that are used are metta kaya kama, metta kama, and metta mano Commentary to the Sutta mentions different types of different examples of what we might call loving acts, loving bodily acts that can be done openly and that are done privately. Openly for example if one of the companions is sick say if one of these companions is sick then the other monks will come to take care of him they'll sweep his room prepare medicines for him bring him his food clean up his room for him and so on as for a, a private bodily act of loving kindness that will be done, that is something that might be done secretly so that if say the monk is gone and another monk comes to call on him and sees something is misplaced then he might put it in the right place might do a little special favor for him if the room is a little say dirty he might sweep it out for him without telling him about it without boasting to others that i have done such and such but it's good acts which are done secretly for the sake of practicing kindness and loving concern towards others. Maintaining verbal acts of loving-kindness towards them, both openly and privately. In this case, a loving act of speech openly would be some speaking kind and helpful words to them words motivated by gentleness for example or in a community speaking praise of others if somebody does a good deed telling him that we appreciated what you've done it was very kind of you to do this or if a person is disabled in some way asking Is there anything that we can do for you? Can we make any arrangements for you? If you ever need any help, just let me know. So speaking openly to others in ways which reveal the qualities of kindness and loving concern. And then maintaining verbal acts of loving kindness towards others privately doesn't mean that one speaks that one talks to oneself (laughs) enumerating the virtues of others but rather one speaks words of admiration, appreciation towards others about the qualities of a third person that is when one meets person X, Y, and Z and one has admiration and feelings of kindness towards persons A, B, and C, then one will extol the good qualities of A, B, and C towards X, Y, and Z. Then I think maintaining acts of loving kindness towards others, both openly and privately, well, here, one cannot (laughs) make one's thoughts appear in, in, physical, in the physical realm so that others can see them publicly. But I think what this means is that one arouses thoughts of loving-kindness towards others when one is in their presence thinking, may these persons be well, happy, free from suffering and so on and privately could be understood as arousing the thoughts of loving kindness in their absence when one is sitting privately doing metta meditation or just when reflecting quietly one will think may such and such persons be well and happy free from all harm and suffering okay so that is these These are these three very basic principles of harmonious living that is maintaining bodily acts of loving-kindness, verbal acts of loving-kindness, and mental acts of loving-kindness. And these are among the three principles, these three principles are amongst the six principles that the Buddha lay down to the Sangha, the monastic order, in order to ensure the long duration of the Buddha's asana. He said that there are six principles of harmony and respect which must be observed if the Sangha is to exist for a long time. The first of these, of those three principles, these three types of loving-kindness. The other three are maintaining harmony in the observance of the precepts, maintaining harmony or maintaining harmony in holding the samadhi, the right view of the Buddha's teachings, and sharing Whatever lawful gains come to the Sangha. Okay, so having first announced these three basic principles of harmonious living, the venerable Anuruta elaborates a little. He says, I consider why shouldn't I set aside what I want to do and instead do what these venerable ones want to do this I think is a very significant contrast to the way (laughs) we usually go about doing things when we're working together in a group usually if we're in a group Maybe I think of something and I feel that this is the right way to go about it. And then other people will give rise to their ideas. One will think this is the way to go about it. Another will think that is the way to approach it. And So each of us gives rise to our own idea about how things should be done about what we're going to do how to achieve our aims and then because that idea comes from myself I assume it must be the correct way and rather than discuss our ideas rather than submit to what on all objective considerations appears to be the best idea each of us hangs on to our own view, our own notion of what should be done, and then we get involved in quarrels, disputes, conflicts. But here, Venerable Anuruddha says that instead of putting my fir- myself first and thinking that I'm the great disciple, my ideas are the best, All of us should do what I want to do. He thinks, for the sake of our communal harmony, let me put aside my ideas and follow what these other ones want to do. Of course, the other ones will say that that they too take the same approach of putting aside their ideas and submitting to the other two. And so in that way, since each is willing to relinquish his own notions, his own views. They are able to pool their different ideas and then act harmoniously on what seems to be the most satisfactory approach. And so Anuruddha says, then I set aside what I wish to do and I do what these Venerable Ones wish to do. We are different in body, Venerable Sir, but one in mind. That is, their minds are in such perfect harmony with each other that they are always in agreement about what they're going to do. And then the Buddha questioned the other two monks about this and they replied in exactly the same way. Okay, next the Buddha introduces a new topic. He says, I hope that you all abide diligent, ardent, and resolute And Anuruddha says, surely, venerable sir, we abide diligent, ardent, and resolute. Then when the Buddha asks, how do you go about doing so? Now Anuruddha is going to show how they are living together. And he begins at a very, say, mundane, at a very mundane level just by showing how they live together harmoniously creating opportunities for each other to abide diligent ardent and resolute which means in effect to apply their efforts towards the development of the mind especially the development of the meditative attainment And so Anuruddha says, as to that venerable sir, whichever of us returns first from the village with alms food, prepares the seats, sets out the water for drinking and for washing, and puts the refuse bucket in its place. This is an example here of what we might call a bodily action of loving-kindness. Instead of the one monk just living very much for himself when he comes back from his alms round, just taking his own seat, setting out his own water, whichever monk, one of the three, comes back first, makes the preparations for the entire group. So we could see that they're living in very, very, what you might call primitive conditions, perhaps without, well, maybe they have a very primitive dhanasala, maybe just the structure with an open-air structure with an overhanging roof. And the seats will be probably just straw mats might be stacked in a corner, and there will be these maybe cups for holding drinking water and washing water stacked someplace, and the refuse buckets stacked someplace else. And so whichever monk comes back first, maybe we will sweep the dana sala and put out the mat seats, put out the cups and the, what do you call the patikama, that bucket with the waste? Patikama. and then when they all even though this is not quite explained in the sutta we can imagine that any monk who returns first will wait for the other monks to come back to make sure that they all have collected enough alms food and if one monk should be short and another monk should have surplus, then they will he will the one who has a surplus will give some of his extra alms food to the monk who is short. <clears throat> and so whichever of us returns last eats any food that is left over if he wishes. Otherwise, as if there's too much. He throws it away where there is no greenery, there is no crops growing or no grass growing, or drops it into water where there is no no living beings. Here this shows the concern of the monks for their environment. I'd say a very, very ancient lesson in environmental cleanliness. If there's a green lawn, in which is attractive grass, the monk doesn't want to throw his leftover alms food onto the grass or some place where crops are growing. He won't throw it onto the crops, but he'll find some opening, perhaps a place under a tree, a clearing, and put the leftover alms food there. One can be sure that within a few hours, (laughs) it will all be gone, since different animals that live in the the forest will come and and eat it. And also, they don't want to, if there's a body of still water, they don't want with fish and other living animals, and there's a lot of alms food left over then they won't throw it into the water since that will pollute the water. But if there's a little alms food that can easily be eaten by the creatures in the water, then I think it would be quite all right for them to put it at the edge of the water so that the fish and the turtles could come to eat it. Okay, and then I could think that generally if they all finish eating about the same time, then they will all put away their seats together and clean up together. And he will put away the seats and the water for drinking and washing. He'll put away the refuse bucket after washing it and sweep out the refectory. I would think that as each one finishes the meal, he'll put away the things which are within his own province of concern, like his own seat, his own cups. But he'll leave the cup and the seat for the last one to come back, so the last one to return only has to clean up his own space. Okay, then if anybody, any one of them notices that the pot of the drinking water is low or empty, or the water for washing, or the water for the use in the latrine is low, then he will fill the pots of water himself. But if there is too much water to be collected, if the vessels to be carried are too heavy then he will call one or another of the other monks by a signal of the hand and then they will join hands together in order to carry the buckets of water to replenish the supplies of drinking water, washing water, water for use in the latrine. But because of this, we do not break out into speech. This is to indicate how they are really abiding, diligent, ardent, and resolute. That they all have made this vow together. They've established this pact or accord that they do not want to disperse their attention by breaking out into speech, but four days out of five they'll observe silence together. They're well aware that if one doesn't make a fixed determination like this, but just without such a fixed determination, one just decides privately that one is not going to talk, then perhaps one sees that the one bucket is empty and one just says, come friend, let's fill the bucket, but we'll keep silence. (coughs) The other says, yeah that's a good idea, we should really keep silence. But (laughs) there's something that's been on my mind. (laughs) And then one thing leads to another and before long did you s- <laughs> hear a report about what happened in Pakistan the other day? <laughs> or who won the elections in Germany <laughs> or <laughs> France? Who won in Canada? Um, who is running for this position, that position? What? <laughs> And before long, one is embroiled in all sorts of idle chatter. And so by maintaining this agreement, of course I don't think that these monks would engage in that kind of talk, but we just know from experience how our best intentions to adhere to a private vow of silence or of right speech can easily be derailed, even just by engaging in some casual conversation. And so four days out of five, they maintain this pledge of silence in order to devote themselves to the practice of bhā meditation. In fact, as we learn at the end of the sutta that all of the monks are already arahants, and so they're incapable really of being led astray into improper speech. But still, in order to devote their energy undistracted to abiding these higher meditative attainments, they observe silence. Then on the fifth day, they come together in the evening and then they spend the entire night having a discussion on the (coughs) Dhamma. That is how, he says, that is how we abide diligent, ardent, and (coughs) resolute. Okay, maybe I will stop at this point. And then, if there are any questions, So I don't think that there is anything very problematic in, in this passage. So We are reminded of uh, what happened to uh, with this, uh, with the Buddha. Buddha left him discussed in the month. The time he left for the Yeah. Forest. Yeah. legged forest. Yeah. They, they have been arguing about the forest on some very trivial matters. Yeah. Yeah. So we are reminded about that. Actually, there is another sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, in which the Buddha comes to visit Anuruddha these three months, which begins from that incident. It begins with the quarrel at Kosambi, and the Buddha leaves them. He becomes, of course, he's not emotionally disgusted, but he realizes that this—that he's several times he's pleaded with the monks to resolve their differences peacefully and to live in harmoniously and the monks say to the Buddha in effect they say you keep out of this man (laughs) (laughs) let us settle this ourselves who do you think you are? (laughs) and so then the Buddha says that when these wise acres get into a dispute and they won't heed even well intended advice then there's no point that I should stay here, and then he leaves them. And I'm not sure if it was. I think it's after staying in the Parileya forest. Then he goes to call on Anuruta and these two other monks, and the same passage occurs, which shows how they live together harmoniously. But at that time, at the time that Sutta is spoken. Anuruddha and the other two monks are not yet arahants. And so they, the Buddha asks them whether they're abiding, diligent, ardent, and resolute, and they say that they are, but then they bring up a certain problem that they're meeting in meditation in trying to develop Anuruddha, in trying to develop the Divine eye, And then he brings up this problem And then the Buddha says, I too, when I was a bodhisattva, not yet enlightened, still seeking the supreme enlightenment, I too met the same problem. Then he deals with various um, impediments to meditative practice. So the sutta is very similar, at least part of it is very similar to this one. Okay, any additional questions? Okay, then we'll continue again next.